Hello, fellow law nerds. Welcome to another episode of Boom Lawyered, a rewired.news podcast hosted by the legal journalism team that is not going to be discussing the Mueller report today, so you will have some reprieve from the madness. I'm Imani Gandhi. And I'm Jess Piclo. Rewire.news is dedicated to bringing you the best reproductive rights and social justice news, commentary, and analysis on the web. And the Team Legal Podcast is part of that mission. So a big thank you to our subscribers and a welcome to our new listeners. Today, we're going to talk about the case of Jamal Knox. He's a young rapper who was sent to jail because a couple of cops in Pennsylvania heard one of his songs and got all nervous about it. He was charged and convicted for making terroristic threats and witness intimidation. The Pennsylvania Supreme Court upheld his conviction by concluding that he had a specific intent to threaten two police officers with his rap lyrics. The Supreme Court refused to take up Jamal's case this week, even though it presented a great question for the court to answer, and that is, when are words true threats and when are they protected free speech? And that's exactly what we're going to talk about in this episode. True threats, free speech, and how, weirdly enough, those issues always seem to work out to benefit white Christian patriarchy. Funny how that works. Funny. Okay, Amani, I'm excited to dive into this episode because it's a nice meaty one, but where do we begin? There's a lot to talk about here. Well, I'm going to begin by asking you a question. Did you okay. ever in your entire life think that you'd be reading a Supreme Court brief filed by Chance the Rapper and Killer Mike on the history of hip hop? What a time to be alive, Amani. What a time. <laughs> Indeed. I mean, I, I have to say I was I loved reading that brief and I found the, the sort of history that they laid out about hip hop to be absolutely fascinating. Yes, it was. Absolutely. And, um, you know, we can put a link to the brief up on the uh, episode page because, honestly, I encourage listeners to uh, take a look at it, not only just because it's so well written, but because this case and this episode is not just about, like, rap and free speech. It's really about more weaponizing of the First Amendment, right? Right. And that's something that we've been hammering for Mm -hmm. 50 episodes or so now. So... (laughs) Let's get into this. (laughs) Let's get into this. Why does this? Let's talk about why this case matters to our listeners. Why does it matter to people? Okay, so the First Amendment doesn't protect all speech, right? We have exceptions. We have exceptions for things like libel, exceptions for incitement, obscenity, fighting words, and another one for true threats, which is what's at issue in Knox's case. So I think the first issue that we need to address is what exactly is a true threat? Yeah, good idea. So let me just break that down a little bit. True threats are not protected by the First Amendment. According to the Supreme Court, the speaker need not actually intend to carry out the threat. Rather, the prohibition on true threats, quote, protects individuals from the fear of violence and, quote, from the disruption that fear engenders. In addition to protecting people from, quote, the possibility that the threatened violence will actually occur. That's what the Supreme Court said in a case called Virginia v. Black. That case was about whether or not a Virginia statute banning cross-burning was constitutional or not. 
The issue was whether or not cross-burning in and of itself was evidence of an intent to intimidate or whether it was an expression of shared ideology and therefore protected under the First Amendment as speech. So the question is, is cross-burning ipso facto a threat or is it an expression of the KKK's shared ideology and therefore protected under the First Amendment? Now, remarkably... Clarence Thomas sided with Virginia. He actually said that cross-burning should not be protected by the First Amendment. He likened it to, you know, Rehnquist saying that flag-burning shouldn't be protected by the First Amendment. I'm a little shocked. Right? (laughs) What's going on here? Can you explain this to me? How? What? The fact that Thomas took, like, the right side on a racial issue is always mind-boggling to me because he is routinely on the wrong side when it comes to racial issues. But what he said is... This statute, this is the Virginia cross-burning statute, this Uh statute prohibits only conduct, not expression. And just as one cannot burn down someone's house to make a political point and then seek refuge in the First Amendment, those who hate cannot terrorize and intimidate to make their point. He's right. He's absolutely right. The thing is, with these speech and conduct cases, is they're messy. And, you know, I am not personally comfortable with this idea of, like, super bright lines and, you know, particularly a a court declaring, you know, one thing is or is not. Um, But we also have moments in, in our history and certain things that do just carry weight. And that is the context that matters in legal analysis. And holy shit, I love to see that. That right. was amazing. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> you know, and so like, so I just mentioned that the Supreme Court really hasn't given any clear guidance on how to tell when a threat and when, you know, uh, conduct and speech like that is a crime. And not surprisingly, when the courts have waded into these issues, they've almost always come down on the side of white folks and evangelicals. I, for one, am shocked to hear you say that. I know, it is. It's It's really, really shocking. (laughs) And I think the Knox case is a really excellent example of that. So how about we start talking about that and and let's get folks caught up. What's happened? What happened with Knox? Jamal Knox was arrested in 2012 on gun and drug charges. After his arrest, Knox, who performs under the name, quote, Mayhem Mal, wrote and recorded a song with another rapper who calls himself Soldier Bees, and the song was called Fuck the Police. Now, the song, for anyone who has even the basest familiarity with hip-hop, was obviously an homage to the 1988 NWA song, that's Niggas with Attitude for you white folks who don't know, (laughs) the NWA song called Fuck the Police. And so, Jess, why don't you give us a little bit of what this song was? Why don't you give us, you know, drop a hot 16 for our listeners. (laughs) I'm going to give my best Carl Castle on this right now. These are some of the lyrics that got Knox arrested, folks. All right. If y'all want beef, we can beef. I got artillery to shake the motherfucking streets. If y'all want beef, we can beef. I got artillery to shake the motherfucking streets. You dirty bitches won't keep knocking my riches. This ghetto superstar committee ain't with it. Fuck the police. You dirty bitches won't keep knocking my riches. This ghetto superstar committee ain't with it. Fuck the police. (laughs) I love you to death, Jess. But that was literally the whitest shit I've ever heard in my entire life. I tried really hard. (laughs) No, it was really good. It was really good, but also super white. And I love you for it. (laughs) I am who I am. (laughs) 
So the song, part of which Jess so artfully read, was uploaded to Facebook and YouTube by a third party. It included the names of the two Pittsburgh police officers who arrested them and were scheduled to testify in the drug and gun case against these two rappers. Now, those officers became fearful when they heard this song on Facebook. One of the officers actually cited it as one of the reasons he decided to leave the Pittsburgh police force and move. The other officer said that the song was, quote, very upsetting and made him concerned for his safety and the safety of his fellow officers and his family. I mean, that's some white panic right there, Imani. You move? <laughs> like, he heard a rap song and he, he fucking fled. moved. He's out. He's out. <laughs> so absurd. You know, after being on the force for how long? I, and it's a song. You're like, nope, that's it. This is it. I'm out. Yeah. But, you know, Jess, to his credit, the song did feature a lot of sirens and gunfire. And it had lyrics like, quote, let's kill these cops because they don't do us no good. OK. Um, so, I mean, a lot of rap songs include the sounds of sirens and gunfire, right? Like those are effects. And, you know, I mean, I don't know. I've already established my whiteness here, but I mean. <laughs> no, you're not wrong. There are a lot of songs that include sounds of sirens and gunfire. Burr, 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 burr. That's one. That's just like an air horn. They have police <laughs> siren. That's the sound of gunfire. One can imagine that in a rap song. Yes, that happens. So what the hell is going on here? It, it beats me, really. But it was certainly enough for prosecutors to charge Knox with issuing terroristic threats and intimidating witnesses. Oh, good grief. Yeah, exactly. So Knox said, it's just a song, man, and it's protected by First Amendment free speech. But the cops testified that the song made them very scared and very nervous. So Knox was convicted, and the Pennsylvania Supreme Court affirmed his conviction, largely based on the printed lyrics of the song. Here's what Chief Justice Thomas G. Saylor of the Pennsylvania Supreme Court said. Quote, the song's lyrics express hatred towards the Pittsburgh police. As well, they contain descriptions of killing police informants and police officers. He added, they do not include political, social, or academic commentary, nor are they facially satirical or ironic. I'm kind of speechless here. Mm-hmm. Just a little bit. Like, sure. <laughs> the lyrics express hatred to the Pittsburgh police. Yeah. So the fuck what? Right. Like that <laughs> exactly. that is that is not particularly helpful and you know like we've said the Supreme Court hasn't really cleared up the question of when something is a true threat and thus not protected speech and it has offered some guidance and it's suggested that there are two things that are needed to make a statement a threat. One, the speaker has to have some kind of intent to make a threat. And two, a reasonable listener would have to understand that statement to be a threat. So it's a calculation. We have an intent to threaten plus a reasonable person feeling threatened. That's the law at issue, right? But Amani, what's this case really about since we're talking about rap lyrics and police being scared? Mm -hmm. That can't be it. No. The case is, here's what's going on. This case shows us that the developing test about what is or is not a true threat is garbage. And okay. it will always benefit white folks and the religious right. I mean, I think that's pretty fair. I am still trying to wrap my head around how 
anybody could conclude that it was reasonable that veterans of the Pittsburgh police force would feel threatened by these lyrics on Facebook by a kid. I mean, Knox was a 19-year-old rapper. He's emulating folks, right? Like, this isn't difficult to see, but here we are. Right. And it is difficult to see for a lot of white folks, but we're going to get into that a little bit later. But first, you know, I know that you have some things to say about what you also think this case is about in terms of white Christian patriarchy. So, you know, let's let's hear it. Give it to our listeners. I appreciate I appreciate you sort of tossing me the mic on this because it would be impossible for me to talk about uh, true threats and not talk about the Angel Dillard case. And this mm-hmm. case is is amazing. So uh, let's get folks caught up because it's been a little while. Um, do you remember Dr. Myla Means, Amani? She was the Wichita provider who was going to step in and start offering abortions after Dr. George Tiller was murdered by Scott Roeder. I do remember that. I also remember that trying to become an abortion provider in Wichita is fraught with peril and death threats. Yeah, so I'll give I'll give folks a little sample of what that looks like. In 2011, when this was going on, Dr. Means got a letter from a woman by the name of Angel Dillard. And that letter warned Means that if she started providing abortions in Wichita, thousands of people across the country would be looking into her background to learn her habits and routines. And the letter said that Means would be checking under her car every day for explosives. Nice lady. Yes, she seems like a real peach. That letter attracted the attention of the Department of Justice, which sued Dillard under the Freedom of Access to Clinic Entrances Act. That's the FACE Act, the federal law that uh, protects access to abortion and is designed to prevent intimidation of, of providers and patients. So they filed a civil claim, not a criminal claim. They sued her under that. Now, a couple notes about Dillard. Uh, she was friends with Scott Roeder, of the course. man who... <laughs> who uh, murdered Dr. Tiller. She sought him out. She visited him in jail and then started sending letters to Means. And the Department of Justice actually tried to get those communications entered into evidence, but the judge had determined that Dillard was acting, and this is one of my favorite parts of the story, as a minister to Roeder in jail. So therefore, those communications between the two were protected by ministerial privilege. That is, they never came into evidence. Is she even a minister? Well, she was for this purposes. Her and her husband, conveniently enough, set up a prison ministry to start doing all of this. Oh, and that's nice. You know who their only client was? Scott, Scott Roeder, I'm sure. Weird. Yeah, yeah. That's so I actually was in Wichita for Dillard's trial, and it was I it gets that. more bananas. Oh my gosh, it was it was more bananas. So first, the good news. The jury found that that letter technically constituted a threat, like that that was a real threat. And in Wichita, hey, that's that's good, right? That should be good news, right? Except, and this is where I think this case is interesting, really, in the context of how First Amendment law really works, the jur- so the, the jury found that it was a threat and that there was the intent to threaten. Remember how I said there was this, like, calculation? The jury also found that it was reasonable for Means to feel threatened, given the reference that the letter had to Tiller's murder, the car bomb mention, all of that, okay? So good news, we got the calculation right. Except yeah. the jury then said... No, you know, those threats weren't actually enough for the Department of Justice to get any damages, to uh, reward anything uh, to Dr. Means for her fear, for her not moving forward with her practice. And that's because they weren't real threats. They were spiritual threats. Oh, for fuck's sake. (laughs) You've got to be kidding me. What is a spiritual threat? Apparently... 
Dillard's evangelical Christianity includes this big, angry, vengeful God, and her attorney told jurors during closing argument that Dillard, as a woman with strong beliefs, uses strong words to persuade others. So sure, she was threatening means, but she was really threatening her spiritual salvation, not her time here on Earth. That is the biggest load of horseshit I've ever heard in my entire life. I mean, yeah. Yeah, I interviewed one of the jurors afterwards, and this is what he told me. He said, the letter was intimidating, but it was more a spiritual threat, a more emotional threat. It was not a threat of physical violence, and therefore it didn't violate the law. But she literally said, you're going to have to check under your car for bombs and explosives. How is that? A a spiritual threat would be like, I don't know, you're going to have to check under your car for holy water or something. Like, not bombs and explosive things that can actually kill you. What the fuck? And that's one of the reasons why I was excited to talk about the Knox case and to talk about true threats and free speech. Because, you know, we have this test that the court has laid out and it sounds like it could be kind of reasonable, except when we start talking about the cases and its sort of application in real life. Right. Right. And that's exactly what's, uh, you know, my concern about this particular case, because as you said, you know, juries and judges are willing to give a pass to essentially domestic terrorists, these, you know, anti-choicers who think that murdering doctors and blowing up clinics is some sort of spiritual revolution. But this Knox case is also about the unbearable whiteness of the judiciary mm-hmm. and the and white people essentially refusing to reckon with black culture and the way in which hip hop is actually poetry. Mm-hmm. You know, the Supreme Court, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, stripped the meaning and context from the rap lyrics and then presented them as if they were some sort of diary or a manifesto. You know, the court's ruling right. is rife with these sorts of misunderstandings and the cultural bias that has plagued hip-hop as white audiences and critics try to understand and often frequently fail to understand the medium. Mm-hmm. The court acknowledges that rap and other art forms frequently depict violence that, as they say, quote, cannot reasonably be understood as a sincere expression of the singer's intent to engage in real-world violence, but then went on to categorize this rap song as, quote, of a different nature and quality, noting that the words themselves are not the only component of Knox's expressive conduct, which tends to make the song threatening. The soundtrack includes bullhorns, police sirens, and machine gun fire ringing out over the words, quote, bustin' heavy metal. I mean, this is why it's so interesting to me to, to take this case with the Dillard case, because here you have a court going out of its way to sort of strip context and meaning and then apply a malicious intent. And in the Dillard case, you have the jury literally coming to the conclusion that she violated the law, but then still find a way to exonerate her. So, I mean, this isn't about the actual um, substance of the of the content at issue, right? It's about who's speaking and who we feel sympathetic for. Absolutely. And it's also very outcome driven, right? You know, mm-hmm. this jury wanted to to let Dillard have this sort of benefit of the doubt. Oh, she wasn't really trying to threaten someone. It was an emotional threat. Just as this Pennsylvania Supreme Court was unwilling to give Knox and Beasley the benefit of the doubt that their rap song was merely an expression of their rage at the, at the police, their rage at racism and white supremacy. And, you know, back to this amazing amicus brief that Killer Mike and Chance the Rapper, well, they didn't write it themselves because, you know, that's not usually how it works, but their (laughs) names are on it and they signed off on it. I think that's a pretty big, huge deal and I think it's fascinating. But here's what was written in their amicus brief. Quote, 
Viewing the lyrics in their proper context is vital. Like all poets, rappers use figurative language relying on a full range of literary devices such as simile and metaphor. Rappers also, in the tradition of African-American vernacular, invent new words, invert the meaning of other words, and lace their lyrics with dense slang and coded references that defy easy interpretation, especially among listeners unfamiliar with the genre. (coughs) White people. Furthermore... Rappers famously rely on exaggeration and hyperbole as they craft the larger-than-life characters that have entertained fans and offended critics for decades. So, this is one of a series of cases where rap lyrics, and gangster rap lyrics in particular, Mm -hmm. are being used as evidence of violent intent when they have not necessarily been able to prove that the person spitting those lyrics had any violent intent, right? So, Mm -hmm. the irony is that gangster rap is and has been a way for black people to express their frustration with white supremacy, with racism, with police violence, with all of the sort of forces that converge to essentially keep black people in their place. And frankly, it is hip hop and gangster rap and these sorts of lyrics that prevent black people from just going ham on white people, right? I mean, if there is any group of people in this country that has a right to just rise up and fuck shit up, it's black people. And the and I think part of the reason why we don't do that is because we are able to express ourselves through art. We are able to form a community with one another around this art and to vent our pain through hip hop. And so, you know, to have white jurists, white judges ignore all of that context is not it's just very frustrating and it's also racist frankly yeah so there is an article that a couple of professors named Cheris Kubrin and Eric Nielsen wrote the article is called rap on trial and in this article they point out that this phenomenon is on the rise this phenomenon mm-hmm. of using the lyrics of rappers of hip hop artists against them in some sort of um court context that happens quite frequently and they also point out and this is really rather alarming that prosecution training manuals actually recommend using rap lyrics as potentially inculpatory evidence, right? So that means they are looking at the art that people are creating and using that as evidence of some sort of violent intent in order to convict them of crimes. And you know what? They don't do this with other kinds of music, do they, Jess? No, they don't. This is bananas. As I was listening to you and like, you know, stammering to jump in, all I could think of was I wonder how many of those jurors got in their cars and threw in some Johnny Cash on the way home and listened to I Shot a Man in Reno just to watch him die. Right. Listeners know I unironically love country music. Mm -hmm. I am here for country music. I love it. And there is an entire brand of country music called Outlaw Country Music that is violent as hell. Mm -hmm. And I, what? Like, and, you know, so it is just, it, it proves this point so completely. And you don't have to take my word for it. There was even a study, and this is from the Harvard Law Review, uh, printed an article about the Knox case uh, that we grabbed this, where participants were asked to read violent lyrics from country and folk music songs. And some participants were told that those lyrics were from rap songs. Others were told they were from country and folk songs. Amani, can you guess what happened? Hmm, I'm going to go with the people who thought the lyrics were from rap songs thought that those lyrics were super offensive, more so than if they thought they were from country songs. A thousand percent. Participants who were told the lyrics were rap rated the lyrics as more offensive, literal, and in need of regulation. 
racism. It's so fun and so enervating. So that was a pretty law-heavy episode. <laughs> Just a little bit. Also, we got to listen to you read gangster rap lyrics, which is really going to be the highlight of my month. <laughs> we should probably recap, not in me reading gangster rap lyrics, though. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't mind, honestly. We've got the whole song right here. We could just we could just release that as a deep cut. <laughs> Truth threats law is a mess. It's a mess. Right? Like, I think that's what we've established so far. The Supreme Court has given us this muddled test that says the speaker must display an intent to threaten and that a reasonable listener would feel threatened. And from there, the courts have only really made it worse in implementing it. Right. And there are dozens of statutes making it a crime to issue various kinds of threats, right? In the decade ending mm-hmm. in 2014, some 1,500 people were charged with making threatening communications under federal law, according to a brief that was filed supporting um, Jamal Knox, filed by the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers. Prosecutors have wide discretion in who they charge and under what circumstances. And that discretion, plus the white supremacy that's already baked into the courts, is a recipe for disaster. And so the United States Supreme Court, by refusing to take up Knox's appeal and to take another look at what the the Pennsylvania Supreme Court did in this case, just ensures that the concept of true threat will remain muddled, that it will remain confusing, that judges and juries will be able to bring in their own biases in order to make decisions about who gets charged with terroristic intimidation or witness intimidation and who doesn't. And they missed a real opportunity to clarify the law in this area and to make sure or at least to try to get some of the bias and white supremacist nonsense out of this very important First Amendment issue. Absolutely. And I'm rarely like, go Supreme Court, take a case on an issue that I like at this moment in time. But also the fact that Clarence Thomas got it right once suggests that this isn't totally an area that they could have screwed up so significantly. I mean, look, they can always rise to the occasion. But I'm just saying (laughs) at this moment in time, they didn't. And, you know, I agree with you that it was a missed opportunity for some clarity. And in the interim, we're going to unfortunately see a lot of folks get caught up in a criminal justice system um, for some, frankly, really ridiculous stuff, like a 19-year-old kid posting stuff on Facebook. Be careful what you post on Facebook. Christ. Yeah, be careful what you post on Facebook. And, you know, I guess if you're going to be a gangster rapper, don't commit crime because it might come back to bite. I mean, I don't know. None of this makes sense, and it certainly doesn't seem fair. But here we are. Well, the good news, listeners, is that it's okay for even folks like us to be confused. So if you're confused by all of it, welcome! It's a mess! <laughs> Join the party. All of us fellow law nerds, we're all freaking confused. And on that note, we're going to wrap it up. Um, if you want to continue this conversation, if you'd like to hear Jessica read more rap lyrics, you can find her <laughs> on Twitter at Hegemami, H-E-G-E-M-O-M-M-Y. You can find me at Angry Black Lady. I also will read you rap lyrics and probably will do about as good a job as Jess. So, you know, I probably shouldn't be throwing my blackness around here, to be honest. Um, And if you want to follow Rewire.News on Twitter, you can follow at Rewire underscore news. And you should also join our Facebook group. We have cracked 1,000 members. There are people having really amazing conversations in there. Join, answer the question why you like us, and we will let you write in. Other than that, we're going to go ahead and see you on the tubes. See you on the tubes. Boom Lawyered is created and hosted by Jessica Mason Piccolo and Imani Gandhi. 
This episode was produced by Mark Folletti, who is also our executive producer. And the Rewire.News editor-in-chief is Jody Jacobson. 